seated if you've shaken every single person's hand. If not, get back up. No, just kidding. All right, tonight we'll be in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. 1 Samuel beginning in chapter 18. The history of past successes for you or for any other believer does not guarantee ongoing temporal peace. David, remember in chapter 17, as we saw last time, he wins this huge battle against Goliath. And if we didn't know the rest of the story, we might think or imagine that it's going to be smooth sailing for David all the way towards his ascension to the throne, that he's kind of established himself as this great leader and conqueror, and now it's just a matter of time before he gets to the throne. It's going to be all peace on the way there. But that's not at all what David experiences. And we start to see some of this severe opposition that he faces against the, uh, the person that he will replace. So let me begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 19, and then we'll cover the rest as we go through. 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is the Word of God. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul sent him over uh, the men of set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And the spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. In these two chapters, we see that God protects His people when they become the target of fierce opposition. God protects His people when they become the target of fierce opposition. And God protects His people in, in a couple different ways. First, God protects His people from covert opposition. 
That is very obvious. That's what we see in chapter 18. And then in chapter 19, we'll see that God protects His people from overt opposition. So, I'm sorry, the covert is the covered, the, the guarded, the secret opposition. And then the overt is the obvious, um, the, the, the opposition that's very clear. That's what we're going to see in these two chapters. So first, sometimes God protects us from covert opposition, secret opposition, which is what's going on here. And before we get into this opposition between Saul and David, we're going to see that David actually has an ally in the king's son. And we see that sometimes the apple does fall far from the tree in verses 1 through 5. These two chapters about fierce opposition that David faces follow the rise that David has to popularity, right? He does the, the most amazing thing probably in his lifetime, certainly up until that point, but he kills Goliath. And between this time in which he kills Goliath, has this great victory over the Philistines, and, and the time in which all this opposition is going to be spelled out, the author stops us and says, David has this significant, this important relationship with the king's son. David slays this enemy giant. The armies rally behind him to chase, to chase all the Philistines back to their territory. And here Saul brings David into full-time service. And amazingly, Saul's son shows him great love. Now, it's not clear how old Jonathan and David are here, um, but we know that David comes, uh, is not born until the 10th year of Saul's reign. So, so um, he's 30 years old, David is, when he becomes king. And, and uh, it's very likely that Jonathan has already been fighting long before David's even born. So it's, it's very possible that these two guys are not guys that grew up together. They knew each other. They became best buds in school and things like that. And now they, they want to hang out more. That's not like that at all. It's more like Jonathan is probably some 20 to 30 years older than David. And, and yet he has a special affection for David because he knows that the Lord is with him. In fact, that's the, one of the phrases that we see repeated in this section. And for Jonathan, he is actually the anticipated heir to the throne. His father's the king, and he's the first in line to become the next king. And yet, if it were just left to human devices, human schemes, then Jonathan would hold tightly to that, that um, desire to be king and that authority or that right to be king. And yet what we see here in verses 1 through 5 is that he gives that up. Notice in verse, in verse 4. Can we go to the, just do the pulpit mic? Um, verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So here you have the crown prince, the rising king, the guy that from human terms should be the next king. He gives up his princely robe to David along with all of his gear, effectively saying, David, I acknowledge that you will be the future king. And this is amazing, considering that David is probably just a teenager at this time. And notice the motivation behind uh, the, the submission that he has in this covenant making. Verse, um, verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Verse 1, And Jonathan loved him as himself. There at the end of the verse. You see, why was it that Jonathan would make such a gesture to David to offer up such great, uh, a great authority right for David to, to take over the kingship. It was that he saw that God's purposes were in view and that he loved David as himself. 
Well, in verse 5, we see that David prospers wherever he goes uh, in the middle, the, towards the beginning of the verse. And then in verses 6 through 16, we see that a vengeful God-hater is more concerned about his own reputation than he is about corporate success. The vengeful God-hater that I'm talking about here, obviously, is King Saul. He's more concerned about his own reputation, protecting his own skin, than he is about corporate success. And here we have Saul start to make this attack, this this uh, pursuit of David, and he does it co- go covertly to begin with. I mean, think about what a spirit of excitement we have throughout Israel. The people once were standing in the valley of Elah. This champion keeps coming out every day, taunting them and, and taunting their God, and they are completely in fear. David comes out, slays the giant. They take over that territory and chase the Philistines back, plunder their resources. What a great spirit there is for the nation of Israel. And what do they do? They come back home and they start singing this song like we might do after we win a world war. And that is this song here in verse 7. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so this is probably not disparaging Saul in any way. The people did not intend to say, you know, Saul, you're terrible. You can't do nearly as much as what David does. I think this is actually supposed, supposed to be designed as a way to, to, um, to praise Saul. That is, Saul, you have slain your ten- thousands, and David, your servant, the one in your care, under your command, he has slain his ten thousands. But notice how he responds to it. Notice how Saul looks at this. He doesn't see this as a way that, 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 would, um, that would praise him or, or be in any way an encouragement to him. Verse 8 says, He became very angry for this saying displeased him. And here's what he focuses on. Not that he slayed the thousands and that David was under his care, but that David had slayed the ten thousands. And what do I have left to give him except for the kingdom? And Saul, because the Lord had left him and this evil spirit had come upon him, had this, this song stuck in his head like that song that you have that you just can't get out right when when our kids were younger it was the barney song for saul it was this song saul has slain his thousands and david his ten thousands and he can't get that song out of his head and he interprets it in light of probably what what a promise that samuel had given to him right remember what samuel said in chapter 13 verse 4 and 15 verse 28 where he said there's coming along someone else who's going to be better than you, and he's going to take the kingdom from you. It's not going to continue in your family. And Saul's much like King Herod. He sees a threat to his throne, and he wants to, he wants to squelch that threat, doesn't he? He wants to put it out. And so what does he do? In verses 10 and 11, he tries to kill David because of his hatred and his jealousy. And yet we see uh, at the end of verse 11... Now let's just read all of verse 11. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. Now David's first response to Saul's attempted murder might have been shock and a little bit of understanding. Like maybe I can, I can see why Saul would be mad about this and he might have been taking this the wrong way, so I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And maybe if I just go back to playing music, he'll get over this and, and he won't throw spears at me anymore. But apparently David stays around because he has to escape twice from Saul's throw. And after the second time, David knew it was time to go. In verses 12 through 16, we see that Saul is afraid of David because of David's prosperity. 
Notice this phrase that's repeated. Verse 12, Now Saul was afraid of David. Why? For the Lord was with him. Verse 14, David was prospering in all his ways. Why? For the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David. The Lord had departed. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and had come on David, the the rising anointed king. And it was only a matter of time before David would rule over Israel. Well, in verse 13, Saul promotes David for political reasons. Again, this is why it's covert, right? Instead of making it very clear that he hates David, he does in private by throwing the spear, but he promotes him. And so for people who are watching on, they're thinking uh, they must be in good standing, the two of them. Maybe in order to appease the people, he promotes David and, and uh, puts him in a place. But, but more likely, he's trying to get David killed. And David prospers despite Saul advancing him, putting him in a place of danger in verses 14 and 15. David continues to prosper. And notice in verse 16, the people continue to love him. All Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. And this added to Saul's problem because if Saul would have him executed, the people would think he was crazy. And so it seems as if initially Saul's Saul's goal was just to pretend to like him and get him killed out on the battlefield. So eventual God-hater is more concerned about his own reputation than about corporate success. He should have seen this as a way that God was prospering, his, continuing to bless his, his ruler, uh, his, his kingship. Instead, he saw it as a threat to his leadership. Next, a vengeful God-hater covertly tries to eliminate his competition in verses 17 to 30. He covertly tries to eliminate his competition. Here you have David, a national hero, Right? Think about you know someone maybe from our history who we think of as a hero and, and that we would never despise. Saul has that in real life. And what is he supposed to do with him? The only thing that he can do is to try to kill him covertly. So that's what he does in verses 17 through 19. He, he offers to David his daughter, Merib, but in order for David to pay the bride price, the dowry for Merib, he had to go and fight the Philistines. He says... Notice what Saul says here. For he, uh, he thought, middle of verse 17, For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So if, if they can kill David, then it won't look so bad on me. And David rejects his initial offer in verse 18. And so in verses 20 through 30, Saul offers another daughter. This time her name is Michael. And in, a, in order to, again, pay the bride price, this happened to be one that loved David, and David was more interested in it, apparently. In order to pay the bride price, David wouldn't have had the money to do that. So instead, Saul said, in, in, uh, in exchange for that, I'll, I'll accept the death of 100 Philistines. So let me read uh, verses 20 to 30 so we understand what's going on here. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and when they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought... I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? So again, I don't have the money to be able to pay this bride price, this dowry. 
So why, how could I possibly be the king's son-in-law? Verse 24, the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. So they're basically the, the messengers here, these servants. And then Saul said in verse 25, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Again, the same idea with Merib as it is with Michael. He wants David to die at the hands of the Philistines. Verse 26, When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the day, days had expired, David rose up and went, and he and his men, and, and they struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that, notice this phrase again, the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commander of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. So here we get a window into Saul's thinking. We don't often get this when we're reading stories. We get to see their thoughts. A lot of times we just are able to hear their words and see their actions. But here the writer of Scripture tells us about what Saul is actually thinking. For he thought that David would be killed by the Philistines. Now, if we think back a little bit to chapter 17, Saul had already promised in verse 25 that he would give to the, to the winner over Goliath, to the champion of Goliath, that he would give him riches and my daughter in marriage and exemption from taxes for all of your family. And so technically, David shouldn't have had to pay anything, but Saul has this conniving plan that he's going to use David and all of these relationships and this power that he has in order to get what he wants. And what he wants is David dead. This is the kind of person that Saul is. He has no regard for God. He's concerned mostly about himself and he's happy to use people in order for his own interests. Have you ever known someone like that? They don't care about you. They're not concerned about what's in your best interest or what pleases God. But they're most concerned about just using you as a pawn in their little scheme to get what they want. And they will take whatever resources they have at their disposal to get what they want, including you. But for us, we see here that Saul's intentions are very clear. He wants the greatest threat to his position and his legacy eliminated, and that is David. So David rejects the, author, the offer in verses 22 to 24, but then he takes him up on it and kills 200 Philistines instead of the 100 that Saul required. And so Saul here is using David in order to get what he wants, which is David's death, and he's using the Philistines and his daughter in order to get David dead. Saul is very covert in how he wants to kill David. But isn't it interesting that as we continue on in the Scriptures that we find David doing something not very different? Right When he put himself up against a wall as far as his public image, what did he do in order to protect himself? What I'm talking about is, is his, his sin with Bathsheba. Right? He took Uriah and used his loyalty to his king and he used the opponents and he used his own army. He used the commander of the army in order to get Uriah killed. 
That's exactly what happened. And amazing, I, I, the reason that's amazing is because you have David, a believer, doing that. You have Saul, an unbeliever, doing that. And God lovingly sparing David in this case here in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 18 and yet not sparing Uriah in 2 Samuel 7. Well, David agrees to the, the terms uh, to get Mike, Michael as his wife, his daughter, and he kills 200 Philistines, brings the proof back to Saul, and Saul knows why David is successful in verses 28 and 29. Let's look at verse 28 again. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid. So before he was afraid because he saw that the Lord was with him, saw two times already the Lord was with him, and now the third time Saul is even more afraid because the Lord is with him. And the point is that God is with David and that's why David is successful. And that's why everyone loves him. So sometimes God protects his people from covert opposition, secret opposition we don't even know about that's going on. We're simply just going about our business. We're trying to be obedient to God, trying to live by faith, and we don't know that it's going on. And God protects us from that. And, and aren't you thankful for that? But, but God also protects us from overt opposition. That is, it's more obvious what's, try, what's going on here. We see this, that God protects through, from or overt opposition through ordinary means. So when, when Saul's trying to be very clear about what he's doing, he doesn't care about who knows, and he's trying to kill David, he's going to make it happen. But God uses ordinary means sometimes, and other times he uses extraordinary means. So first, ordinary means, verses 1 through 18. The first means that God uses in order to protect David from Saul's overt opposition is Jonathan in verses 1 through 7. Let me read this text for us. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in, the sec- in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to, his Saul, to Saul his father and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David since he has not sinned against you and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel and saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. So before, Saul's conniving behind the scenes, trying to get David to go out to battle and get killed by the Philistines doesn't work out. Now he's very open about it, and he says to Jonathan, he is a dead man. I'm going to kill him. And Jonathan says, first he tells David about what's going on. And, and think about it in terms of Jonathan's love for David again. Who had the most to lose from David being alive? Who had the most to lose from David ascending to the throne? It was Jonathan, the next in line, humanly speaking, to the throne. And yet he was happily willing to, to protect David. And he did it through, God protected David through ordinary means, this, this friend of his, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan speaks to Saul and, and compels him to reconsider. And he, he does it on the basis of three reasons in verses 4 through 7. First, David was innocent of any wrongdoing. He hadn't done anything worthy of death. Second, David risked his life for Israel and won. 
And then third, if, if Saul killed David in verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, if Saul killed David, he would be killing an innocent man. And apparently this works. Saul reasons with his own son. You know, his son is going to be his confidant, one of his close advisors with regard to battle and, and all things that relate to the, king, the kingdom. And apparently it works. So God protects David first through Jonathan, second through Michael, and verses 8 through 17. Here, David goes out to battle. Let me read verse 8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, and so they fled before him. And what happens when Saul finds out that David wins in battle? Right? That song keeps coming back to his head, doesn't it? Verse 9, Now there is an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. So I'm not going to try to do I don't have to do this when he's at my table anymore. He may not come back. I'm going to just go right to his house and do it right in his bed. So he sent messengers to David's house, verse 11, in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put, why should I put you to death? So in other words, she's saying, He threatened me. right? He threatened me. He said he was going to kill me. And so what am I supposed to do to him? Now she made that up in order to protect him. But, but whatever the case... Uh, David's able to, to flee and she's able to be protected from her father's fury. Verse 18. Uh, oh, that's all, we, that's all we need to look at. So we'll look at verse 18 in just a minute. So David defeats the Philistines. Saul finds out about it. And as a result, he becomes more jealous of David and now he's ready to kill him. And so he sends messengers to Michael's, David and Michael's house and do the job that the Philistines couldn't do and that was to kill David. But God uses Michael, ordinary means, to help David escape. There's much we could say about how she did it and whether or not this was right and what, what was this household idol doing in their house? You know, why did they have this and so on? But I think the point is, is that God uses ordinary means to protect His people. You shouldn't get lost in all the details and miss the main point. Well, Saul confronts Michael and she claims that David threatened to kill her. But the point that we ought to see is that God uses ordinary means of a person who loved David, both Dave, both Saul's son, Jonathan, and now Saul's daughter, Michael. These are the two who are supposed to be family and loyal to Saul are now actually loyal to this David who will soon rule over all. Well, in verse 18, we see a third person that God uses to protect him from, or, from, uh, from covert, uh, excuse me, overt opposition. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him that all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. So here God uses Samuel to help protect David. And so what we see is that God often protects his people from covert opposition. We don't even know about it. It's happening behind the scenes. People are trying to destroy us. And then God 
protects us from overt opposition, clear and open. And he does it through ordinary means, but he also does it through extraordinary means in verses 19 through 24. Extraordinary means. So first the ordinary, Jonathan, Michael, and Samuel, and now extraordinary. This is where God comes in in a miraculous way and he does something that we wouldn't expect. Saul, in verse 19, learns of David's hiding, and so he sends messengers after him. It was told Saul, saying, verse 19, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw... Okay, skip the page there. All right, where are we? There we are. Okay. When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So they learn of David's retreat or escape, and somehow they track him down. You know, maybe it was a low jack on David's camel, or maybe they triangulated a ram's horn that was he was using to call home. Not sure, but whatever the case, they found him. And then something amazing happens. These messengers are sent to track him down, and somehow God causes them to be sidetracked in verse 20. That God, in His divine wisdom, and I would say in His divine humor causes these bounty hunters that are coming to destroy David to actually stop and worship God. That's what this prophesying is. They're actually saying and singing praises to God. And so you just picture this as kind of comical. You have these soldiers of Saul who are sent to capture David and bring him back to Saul so they could be killed, but instead they're there prophesying and joining in with the other prophets who are saying true things about God and praising Him. And then something else happens that's extremely difficult to explain in verses 20 through 24. Uh, first, these first set of um, prophets go and they prophesy. Then the second group comes and they also do the same thing in verse 21. And then the third group does the same thing. And then notice what happens. Saul must be thinking, what a bunch of incompetent dimwits. I mean, last time I, I sent them, they came back because Michael said that David was sick, lying in bed, when in reality it was just a dummy under a blanket with some goat's hair. And now I send them to go get David and they, come, they get stuck worshiping God there. What are they doing? They get involved in a praise service. Let me handle this myself, Saul must be thinking. And this is what he does, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is Siku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? Someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And then notice what happens in verse 23. He proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. So here we have a man who had limited to no self-control, self-restraint, and yet now you have the Holy Spirit of God causing him to prophesy. And, and his prophesying is a little different because the, the, other, the other messengers, when they arrive, they start prophesying. They start saying praises to God. Here, Saul, as soon as he hears about where David's at, starts prophesying. And then he prophesies all the way till the place where the other prophets are. But notice, in addition to that, in verse 24, he also stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore they say, Is Saul among the prophets? So in addition to this prophesying, this praising of God, this speaking truth about God, when he's intending to kill God's servant, the Holy Spirit causes him to, to, um, to, to lose at least his outer garments. But whatever the case, it would certainly 
his garments that he would be wearing would identify him as king, and so to lose even his outer garments would be a sign of disgrace. And, and so by the time that he arrives, he's just laying there with, without his proper clothing on and prophesying and praising God. You have the most powerful man in the nation brought to his knees in humiliation by the Almighty God. And do, do we not see this again later on in history when King Nebuchadnezzar does something very similar? Verse 24 tells us that he remained in this state of humiliation all day and all night, which led the people who saw him to say, Ew, is Saul really among the prophets? Now this is different from what happened before. If you remember from chapter 10, verse 12, they looked at Saul and were amazed that such a king would come from such a small minority group, right? He's from the smallest clan. He's from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan of that tribe, and potentially the smallest family from the smallest clan from the smallest tribe. And so you're saying that he's going to be the king? Is Saul? Here's the question that everybody asks: Is Saul really among the prophets? And at that time in chapter 10, it was used as an expression to say. This is the kind of person that goes from rags to riches. Someone that's acting out of character. We would never expect someone like Saul to be a king, a prophet. And so in chapter 10, it was asked in a positive way. Can he really be someone who is a prophet? But here it's used, I think, in a negative way. What in the world is this crazy man Saul doing among the prophets? Why in the world is he prophesying this is so out of line with who Saul really is. As they come to know him and to see him for his, um, for his actions, they are surprised that he would be among the prophets. So let me remind you of a few of the contrasts between Saul and David just as we think about principles to consider as we conclude. Number one, seek first the kingdom of God. You see, those who, like Saul, are primarily concerned with themselves will be driven by jealousy and hatred of other people. But those who are concerned primarily with God's glory are not going to be concerned about jealousy or trying to force the kingdom on them. Like David, you know, I'm, I'm taking the kingdom now. God said I'm going to be king. I'm taking it. Instead, he's driven by God's timing. David's driven by this deep desire to please God. And, and just as in the battle versus Goliath, what was he most concerned about? Was he concerned about the prizes? Was he concerned about his own name, them making a song about him? No, he's concerned about God's fame. How dare you defy the armies of the living God? How dare you defy our God? And so I come in the name of our God to defend His fame. And David now, in the same way, will not, amazingly, throughout his lifetime, will not usurp the throne of Saul or take it before God's timing, when Saul is clearly unfit to be king. I mean, of all people, David should be able to take the throne from Saul, but he waits on God's timing. Saul, however, is not driven by God's glory. He's driven by a passionate lust for the retention of his power, and he can't stand the thought of being succeeded by someone better than he. And he can't stand the thought of being succeeded before his time. And so what does he do? He slides back into jealousy and fierce rage against David. And the thing that troubles him the most is that the Lord is no longer with him, but is with, is with David. And instead of that thought causing Saul to say, the Lord's not with me. I need to repent. 
Instead of that causing him to repent and to beg God for mercy, what does it do to him? It fills him up with greater jealousy. Friends, how foolish it is to resist the will of God. Do you remember what the nations do in Psalm 2? God establishes His throne. And He promises that His King will reign on this throne. And what do the people do? It says in verse 2, the nations rage against God and, their, and His King. And they plot in vain against the Lord's anointed. They plot to usurp the appointed ruler. And what does God do? What is God up in heaven doing? He's laughing and scoffing at them. Because their attempts to overthrow His ultimate rule is like throwing popcorn at the rock of Gibraltar. It's no good. It is of no use. Instead of these people resisting God's, uh, instead of resisting God's will, we must submit to Him. And this is what Saul needed to learn. And we need to put his priorities first and obey his voice. So seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, remember that protection comes from the Lord. Whether we know about the opposition that we have or not, protection comes from the Lord. Aren't you thankful that God is always on your side? That He is working to protect you from both covert and overt opposition against you. And, and in order to do that, God uses both ordinary and extraordinary means. For David, God protected him in the battles that were meant to kill him. And then for David, God protected him through people that loved him, like Jonathan, Michael, and Samuel. But then later on, we see that God uses extraordinary means in verses 19 to 24 when God uses the Holy Spirit's power to protect him. And the main point that we should see here is that protection comes from the Lord, even though it may not always be overt, it may not always be clear what's going on, how God's protecting us, it may not always be extraordinary. Our protection does come from God, and his protection of us, although may not be clear, brings about the deliverance that he wants. And His deliverance may come in an unexpected way, but the best evidence that we have that God is protecting us is bound up in the promise of His unwavering presence that He never abandons us. As Hebrews 13.5, God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is on our side. And then finally, don't be discouraged by the attack of your enemies. God is not handcuffed when it comes to stopping evil. Or to put it positively, my God is able to deliver you. Job said it this way, God, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Do you believe that? Are you distressed and dispirited because of the attack of the enemies that are against you now? Well, what kind of God do you have? Is your God powerful to rescue you from enemies by delivering you from trials or delivering you through trials? That is, allowing you to go all the way through it. Is God able to do that? Saul sends messengers to capture and kill David, and then Saul comes himself intent on doing evil. But God, with his great power, thwarts Saul's plans, all of them. And he puts Saul in a position where Saul has to acknowledge God's goodness. That's the prophesying part. See, we might look at a powerful enemy like David may have looked at Saul and think, you know, if Saul is against me, what can I possibly do to protect myself? He has all these resources and so much more experience. How am I possibly able to protect myself? But that's not the right question to ask. If this person or this group or this opposition is against me, then, then what can I do to protect myself? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, if God is for me, 
who can be against me? And that's David. He's got God on his side, and that's on his side, and that's all that he needs. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the illustration of what it looks like when you come to the aid of those whom you love and those uh, for whom you have great promise, great, um, great uh, future. And Lord, we're thankful that that you have a purpose for us. We don't see all the things that are going on around us. We don't understand all the opposition. We, we can't explain why Satan's forces are so strong against us at times. We can't understand all the trials that we face. We can't understand the chronic physical conditions. We can't understand the loss of family members and loved ones. We can't understand attacks from outside of our church or from within. We, we can't understand them, but we do know that you are sovereignly working for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, we're thankful that, that you never abandon us. We're never left alone in the fight against Satan and evil and sin. Lord, you work hard to ensure that we stay in the faith and that we stay uh, close to your side. And Lord, if we have you, we have nothing to fear. If you are on our side, what more do we need? Lord, help us to be assured of your presence in our lives and to, to be encouraged by your ongoing love for us. And may, it, may it encourage us and galvanize our love for you and reinforce our desire to obey you. For, for you, Lord, to, for, for us, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. So help us to listen to you and respond to you in, in faithful obedience and do it trusting that you are good and that you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.